because I make ceramic figures, um, like that are you know sculptural sort of figures uh, inspired by human sort of forms, and then I paint them in imagined scenarios. So, without further ado, I'm Hamish McLaughlin Lester. I'm your host. I have Bior Agur, who hello, is hello. the audio engineer. We have no other than Tom Kukenmeister. Kukenmeister or Kukenmeister? Yeah, either or is fine. What's the best way to say it? What's your well, way to say it? If you're Dutch, you say Kokenmeester, and if you're English, you say Kukenmeester. But it, okay. Not much difference. It basically means the master of the kitchen. The master of the kitchen? Yeah. Uh, do you come from a long line of chefs? Uh, apparently, apparently, <laughs> yeah. I'm a decent chef, but, you know, I'm sure there were many better before me. What's your favourite meal to cook? Oh, at the moment, it's pretty late, but I cook on the go at the moment, so just, like, tofu poke bowl or something. I wouldn't know the first way to even start <laughs> to make that. So well done. Yeah, I lived um, with someone in Melbourne during the lockdown and yep. um, she was a really good chef and she taught me a few more healthy sort of things to make around the house because I was just cooking, you know, like... Is it quick? Pasta and pizza. That's what I love about it. It's quick. Yeah, I can do it in 10 minutes yeah. or less than. That sounds like my kind of meal. I'm all about like snacks. I'll have to teach you. <laughs> all right, deal. Um, all right, so you are a visual artist that started your practice with uh, painting and then have moved to sculpture. Yep, correct. Actually, my first um, exhibit, now I was thinking of it, um, was works on paper, which were charcoal drawings with a bit of spray paint on them. Like I stenciled areas and spray painted those areas. And I did that here in Adelaide at something called Plant for Bowden. Wait, no, it wasn't called Plant for Bowden. It was called Bowden something else. It was like just (laughs) before Plant for Bowden. It was the same site, actually. It was like a, a warehouse. Yep. And um. Wow, I wish I could remember the name of it. But um, and it, that's how long ago it was, maybe seven years ago. And I put it on myself and just invited my network along to like come and you know buy something. I think everything was 500 bucks. Yep. And um, yeah, from then I went up into Sydney to do a residency and I sort of got more into oil painting. And from oil painting, I think we were talking before, I got into ceramic sculpture and now I do a bit of both, like oil painting and ceramic sculpture. And how, what was... How did you go about getting that first residency? <clears throat> the first residency in Sydney was basically, so I was living in London before I moved back to Adelaide. I had like a, a different life before I was an artist. So my undergrad was actually business marketing and management at UniSA, which I don't think I've ever used. Um, but I was living overseas for a couple of years and um, I think I'd always wanted to be an artist, but um, never really knew how to go about doing it or, you know, what that entailed because it's not really a career that you, you know, a, you sort of like, you're ever taught that you would be an artist at high school, you know, how to go about it. And even if you go maybe to Adelaide Central and study it, they never tell you how to have a career. They tell you how to paint and how to, you know, draw and how to sculpt. But, you know, starting a career is a completely different thing. So I, I think I'd put, I'd wanted to do it for a long time, but I'd, you know, put it off for a long time. And um, 2015, came back to Adelaide, had that show I just described to you and um, just started applying, like Googling, because I wanted to get out of Adelaide, as I think most young people do it's definitely a common theme yeah well it's i think it's changing a bit now but people still sort of get attracted to the you know bright lights of sydney or melbourne and you know it's pretty yeah pretty seductive i got i got dazzled by gold coast that's where gold i went coast. how long were you in the gold coast i was there for two years what were you I went doing? to uni there oh really yeah, i went to bond oh nice yeah um well actually i did part of my undergrad in montreal um and so i think i was like 20 years old 21 and I was doing anything to get out of Adelaide, basically. I'd take no any kidding. exchange. I would went backpacking. I worked in a bar in, you know, London. I worked in a gallery in London. I did all kinds of stuff. Um, 
but yeah, so I just applied for this residency in Redfern in Sydney, which was pretty crap. Like it was a warehouse they'd, you know, cut up a million ways for all different sort of residents. And I think my rent was $60 a week for, you know, six square meters in this corner. And it, like we were in a cage. There was like, you know, chicken wire kind of thing, keeping us in this like crappy warehouse. And um, from there I got a job at Sotheby's. Sotheby's that just as like a, you know, a van driver and like an install kind of guy. Um, and that sort of afforded me to stay in Sydney a bit longer. And I just sort of got, you know, got hustling, got networking, eventually got a better studio and, um, yeah, started having little exhibitions, just group shows because, um, I sort of held off on a solo show with a commercial gallery until I could find the right gallery. And eventually I sort of did find the right gallery, but that was in 2020. So that was, you know, that's a big distance. Yeah. It was probably four years of just sort of like little bits and bobs of, you know, exhibits that in uh, something called ARIES, which are artist run initiatives. So they're not commercial galleries. They take a smaller percentage on the sale and they don't really have the gravitas or the network of the big commercial galleries. But the thing with a a commercial gallery is like a good commercial gallery can just catapult your career, but the wrong one is just going to be heartbreak because they're going to take 50% and do nothing for you. So yeah, it's something you've got to kind of go into with a bit of trepidation. Yeah, cool. So I forgot your original question. I just went on a you know diatribe. But. It was like, how did you get that original uh, residency? But I think, yeah, how did you actually so organize that? I, I called up and I, I asked them, like, you know, I, I see you're advertising residencies. And it was a pretty crappy residency. Like, it was not something people were fighting over. Um, and I think that they were maybe in their second or third year of doing it. And having someone from interstate probably helped them with grant uh, funding because – you know, the way these sort of grant bodies go is, you know, you've got to say that you're building networks or developing markets. So to have someone come from another state is a way of like showing that you're more national and less local. Yeah. 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 Beauty. And then in terms of getting that first uh, like commercial gallery, what was that for you? Um, it was actually pretty interesting. So it was in uh, the beginning of 2020. I met uh, actually, yeah, I met a, another artist called Nasim Nas, who was from, she was a migrant from Iran who, came to Adelaide and had a very, very, you know, powerful career for uh, quite a while. It still does in, um, through Paul Greenaway gallery here and then Jean Sherman in Sydney. And I met her just on a whim. I can't remember someone introduced us and we went for a walk and got a coffee cause we both moved to Melbourne at the same time. And she said, you know, like, who's your gallery? And I was like, Oh, I don't have one. And um, she said, oh, I'll do something for you. Like, I'll do something to help you. And she put me in uh, contact with a collector called Teresa Bite, who runs a program called Art Incubator. So they give emerging artists at about the five-year mark of their career a grant and set them up with their first, you know, commercial solo. So um, Teresa gave me – it wasn't a huge grant. It was like $5,000, but that you can do what you want with that money. But um, I used it for rent and to, you know, pay my bills. Um, some people, if they don't need the money, I guess they go on a holiday or whatever. But um, I was pretty scra- scraping by at the time. And, um, I and used how that. old were you at this age? God, probably like 29. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so the, of course all the lockdowns happened and, you know, COVID happened. So that was the beginning of 2020. So my, so when was my show? It was scheduled for the end of 2020, but then it got pushed to May 2021. So I had a long time to sort of make that body work. And that ended up happening at a gallery called Jericho Contemporary in Sydney. And it sold out and it was all great. And it had, you know, good reviews and all 
wonderful. And from there, my current gallery approached me sort of, I approached them, they approached me. I'm not sure like how you want to look at it, but like, you know, it's a bit of a dance, like any kind of like business negotiation, you know, the director followed me on Instagram and was liking all my artwork and then commenting. And then I wrote to him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but I think, you know, could see some potential in making a buck, you know, but it's kind of naughty because you're exhibiting with another gallery, but I wasn't under contract. Like when you're represented by a gallery, you've got a contract and you can't really exhibit with other galleries. But this was like a once-off contract negotiated by Teresa at Art Incubator. So it was sort of like, do I stay with that gallery or do I try to get something better? And um, I, yeah, I got a, a bigger gallery, one of the top ones in Australia, which was the person who was liking my pictures and whatnot. And you, I think... What's the gallery? Uh, Martin Brown Contemporary in Sydney. So yep. they're, they're pretty big. And, um, well, yeah, one of the biggest. And, um, yeah, it's from there. I've now got my first solo with that gallery this July. But since then, I've exhibited a couple of times in, like, Melbourne Art Fair or Sydney Contemporary and a few other places through them. So, yeah. Yeah, beauty. And what actually determines, like, what is a big gallery? Is it just, like, you have hev- heavy hitter artists show or, like, they have more funding or, like, what's... Well, commercial galleries wouldn't get funding from any kind of government body because they don't need it. They're a commercial enterprise. They shouldn't be taking, like, you know, taxpayer money. Um, but I guess it's the size of the, the gallery in the sense of, like, I don't know, the, the physical gallery space, the, you know, the names of the artists, like their reputations, you know, the kind of prices they command, um, the context that they exhibit in outside of the gallery, whether, you know, they get institutional shows or, and also I say big gallery because, you know, he's got staff, like some galleries are just like two-man operations or, you know, pretty small staff. So obviously you don't have a dedicated, you know, people for marketing and PR. They might just have like a gallery associate and assistant and, the director who might also double as the general manager kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of role does like a, that kind of gallery play in your creation of your work? Uh, Very little. Like um, they recently flew down just for the day to come to my studio um, to see the work. And I was kind of nervous. I was like, Oh God, maybe they've got notes or suggestions, but they they didn't. Thank God. Um, They really shouldn't get too involved in the creative process. They're just more meant to be, the business side and a little bit of guidance. Like if you go down a weird creative route, they might pull you up and just flag it with you, but they're not really meant to dictate the What way? They were like, hey, where are you going with this? Yeah, like, so what is this? Why does it look so bad? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? Um, I guess, no, I don't know. Like it's never happened to me before. It kind of happened once at a group show in Sydney like years ago when I was like, had nothing going on in my career really. Uh, The gallery director wanted something really, she was very prescriptive, like, and she had a very commercial mindset and a very design mindset. So she asked me to, um, you know, have more like cream backgrounds, more pink gra- backgrounds, because that would work with her aesthetic. But um, it didn't work for me. So yep. I chose not to show with her anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. And in terms of actually the process of how you've created your style of art, what is that? Um, so I start at the moment, what I do is I make ceramic figures, um, like that are, you know, sculptural sort of figures. Uh, inspired by human sort of forms and then I paint them in imagined scenarios so um, I start obviously with the sculpture and then as they're sort of drying in my studio I um, I sort of like imagine how they might interact so then I use that as the basis of a painting which is meant to sort of give more depth and narrative to the, the artwork by showing them interacting in a possible in a different landscape or you know dreamscape yeah and it's like a single or you have like a couple of them interact? 
Um, sometimes I do them more like a single portrait and sometimes it's more, you know, multiples interacting, you know, giving a bit of a story to them. Yeah, cool. And what kind of stories have you, have you painted oh. and created? Um, well, that first show that I took that sold out was called um, There Were Many Edens. So it was based on like um, the biblical Garden of Eden. Um, except when I was researching the Garden of Eden, I realized that, you know, most religions, ancient religions and ancient cultures had some form of Garden of Eden. But with, so like a place of abundance and paradise, not maybe the, bibl the biblical one that we all, or that you and I might be more familiar with. Um, so, yeah, from there I kind of abstracted the Garden of Eden into sort of like archetypes, like, you know, a mother and a father, or, you know, an inventor or, a, you know, like a, a devil or a corruptor and, you know. Mm, so like archetypes in this paradise of yeah. Eden. It, was a, it didn't look very garden-like, but, um, you know, it was the, sort of like a beginning of time kind of space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. And what, what were these different Adam and Eve stories or Eden stories in other I mean, religions? I kept the stories pretty, you know, pretty uh, benign or, you know, not too specific because you don't, with art, you don't really want to be like dictating or um, preaching to an audience. You kind of want to ask questions and let the audience sort of, Fill in the gaps themselves. Yeah, be a bit yeah. ambiguous with it. Yeah, I think. But it's in terms of your research, what are these different garden? I've never heard that. Like, I didn't know that they had like origin story, paradise places. As, as in many, um, as in the other religions that had other gardens. Yeah, I can't really remember off the top of my head, but you know, like the the per Persians definitely had a garden, and like the Israelites had one, and um, you know, the Gr Greeks had one as well okay that makes sense that's there i mean i'm probably going to butcher this but i think they all kind of are down that more christian road than say like being islamic i don't think any of those countries are Look, like historically islamic are they i wish i could give you uh, you know yeah. the proper answer <laughs> islam has a garden of eden that they you know i just don't know I enough about the religions do. i don't know <laughs> i don't know do you know if they do um they have like a, a sort of version like that hold on hmm. <laughs> should all get Google out. Yeah. yeah, get Google out. Let's yeah. check it out. Can I, yeah, we can have a look. Yeah. Have a look. But um, in terms of that ambiguity, what, yeah, like what, where do you draw the line? Um, so, for instance, just to circle back on that Garden of Eden sort of thing, I called the exhibition There Were Many Edens and I basically used it as a, a way to sort of uh, depict a beginning of time where there's an abundance of, you know, uh, and it's a place of sanctuary and sort of stripped from the modern complexities of today because, you know, we've been living through very polarised political sort of times, so it was a way of sort of pairing things back to more the basics. Yeah. Fair enough. I found it. What did you find? So um, the Garden of Eden is mentioned in the Quran. So it said that there are several mentions of the Garden in the Quran, while the Garden of Eden without the word Aden is commonly the fourth layer of the Islamic heaven and not necessarily thought as the dwelling place of Adam. However, Adam, according to Islam, is both first human and first prophet. The Quran says that he and his wife dwelled in the Garden of Eden. But that That's from online. See? Wow, there yeah. you go. See, a they lot of them have it, yeah. Had the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird how all those stories, like, intertwine have you ever watched that um like it's uh it's on youtube it's called like the zeitgeist or something like that yeah and i've seen that documentary I, th I saw that when i was 
1920. It's a very 1920 kind of watch, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? I was probably smoking weed. I think actually a friend of mine who's now a psychiatrist sort of prescribed that to me along with some um, magic prescribed mushrooms. Prescribed that show? Well, he, was a, he wasn't a psychiatrist then. He is now. He was, he was, I think, a registrar or like a you know student doctor at the time. And he pres- prescribed it as in like suggested I watched it and gave me some magic mushrooms to watch it with. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think the world of magic mushrooms and kind of that euphoric or I don't know how do you explain that state, but does that play a part in any of your creativity? No, I haven't done mushies in a long time. I mean, I would never say I won't do them again. I probably will do them again. But uh, actually at the last time I did them was at the NGV in Melbourne just after lockdown. At, at um, the NGV? Yeah, and a group, of, a group of friends, like seven of us, all did it once, but a lot of people hadn't done it before. So um, we went to <laughs> – so it became a bit of a spectacle – um, seven of us sort of like half having drinks and it, there were still masks rules as well. Yeah. So it was just, we'd just been out of lockdown. We probably weren't as socialized as you normally were after you would be if you hadn't seen your friends for a hundred and something days. Um, we all took magic mushrooms and we're going around the triennial, which was a lot of like big installations and very like trippy kind of artwork. So that already kind of added to everything. And then there was the mask on mask off thing and people just couldn't get their heads around it. Like, which areas you could have a mask on, which you, you could drink in, which was outside, which was inside. Like it just, we'd, everyone lost their shit and we had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that kind of like, uh, that like childlike, like, what do we do here? What you do we do? You could just see people like, you know, have you been to the NGV? You know those weird yeah. um, elevators that are yeah. like, it's kind of hard to navigate. And some people, you could just see them going up and down the elevator, <laughs> tripping on mushrooms. It's like, we've got to leave here. <laughs> yeah, you're just getting lost. You're not even looking at the art anymore. No. We were we were the uh, we were the installation. <laughs> hey, that's good performance art. Yeah, exactly. Just unannounced, just a spectacle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And then so we had the Eden, or the many Edens that you did, and then now you've had how many other shows have you had since then? Well, no solos. That was my last solo and probably first commercial gallery solo because mm-hmm. a solo takes so much time and energy, like almost a year to make a solo. How for, many for a pieces lot of people. did you have for that? That was seven sculptures and six paintings. And how big are your sculptures? So they re- at the moment they range. Like for that one, they were all probably, let's say, 35 centimetres tall. Mm-hmm. But um, in this upcoming one, they sort of range from 30 to, you know, 80 centimetres kind of thing. So 80 centimetres? Yeah, like oh, a big se- 70 something. Yeah, probably like that, the biggest one, I'd say. Yeah. Cool. And what kind of things are you creating at the moment? So it's like an extension of that theme or a continuation of that theme, but I called it, it takes a village. So I've sort of conceived like a village and I've used those archetypes again. So it's sort of like a father, a mother, a, a you know, a, a king, a, like a, I think there's a sun God, there's a, a devil, like which looks like a goat. Um, yeah. What else is there? Like a prince, like, you know, there's all a healer, an apostle, like there's all very like archetypical sort of, sort of characters that inhabit the village. Are you Christian? Uh, well, I was, you know, I was christened, but do you like practice any, like, I, I don't really practice religious No, I'd say I'm things? more agnostic, you know? Yeah. But I just, what, what has that journey been like for you? Cause I feel like spirituality is something that's been lost more and more. And yeah. there's been a bit of a, like for better or worse, right? It's definitely mm. up for it, the conversation, but there's definitely a collapse in spiritualness that is being practiced as the norm. Yeah. So uh, what is your connection to the spiritual man? I mean, it's funny. I was at, it was in a church last Saturday and uh, for a wedding and I hadn't been to a church wedding in a long time, but obviously I went to a school in Adelaide where we went to church, you know, once or twice a week and we said the Lord's prayer every morning. 
And it was pretty funny that all the, the, the hymns and the, the, I don't know what it was. You, you say hymns and you say prayers in a church. And yeah. um, they all came back to me pretty quick at that wedding. I was like, fuck, I know all the words to this. I'm pretty indoctrinated. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. But um, yeah, I was christened and I don't know. I, I, I'd consider myself a, a relatively spiritual person, but, you know, just not in that organized religion sort of sense. Yeah. Do you meditate? I do meditate. Yeah. Do you yoga? I don't do yoga. No, I have done yoga, but I stick to meditating now. I can say I go for meditate for. So when I started was actually in lockdown. I did a bit of meditating before then, but the big Melbourne lockdown, I needed something to help get through. And it was funny when I first started meditating, I would like, I did a, just a not a non-guided one, just like a timed breathing meditation. And I put my um, iPhone on and I put the timer on and I, you know, closed my eyes and I meditated for a bit. And then I thought I'd be doing it for so long and I opened my eyes ready to stop and it'd been six minutes. Like whoa, that's not not good. But by the end of lockdown, as I was in that was a long time or a short. I, time? I thought I was there for half an hour. Yeah, like, okay. and I was getting so fidgety. Yeah, but by the end of lockdown, I did half an hour a day. Yeah, and that's I st- good. I still do about half an hour. Yeah. And how do you think that's impacted your life? Oh, I don't know. I think it's like it's, it's something I use when I need it, and as in when you're like stressing. When I'm stressed or pent up or, you know, you too much, you feel overwhelmed, I think. It's a good way to center yourself and bring yourself back to the moment rather than be thinking in the future. I don't have much of a problem on, with dwelling with the past. I think a lot of people get depressed from dwelling in the past. I'm more way too in the future thinking about a million things to do. So meditating sort of brings me back to that now. Present, yeah, fair. And do you have you ever tried like manifestation meditations and stuff like that? I haven't done manifestation meditations, but I've got – a very good friend who is obsessed with manifesting and it's kind of infuriating when he thinks he can manifest like the score of a football game or like a tennis match. And it's like, that is not you, but I let him <laughs> believe it. I let him believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if enough people are doing it. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. know. Maybe the people in the game should be doing it. <laughs> they are. They're yelling. Yeah, of it. course they are. They're yeah. yelling it. They're screaming at each other saying, yeah, da, da, da. Um, all right, so back to your art and your artist journey and the ideas that you're playing with at the moment to create these archetypes. Like mm. when you're looking at, say, like the pastor or the, the preacher, like how are you looking at what kind of to create them? You know, like what little features and stuff like that. You're like, oh, yeah, that's – do you like research like, oh, this little feature is based on like this particular culture or I, stuff like that? When I've done things like um like an apostle I did in a healer, I used very kind of like – I used archival kind of imagery, sort of like you might find find in like, I don't know, a, a digital archive like usually. But I used to, funny enough, I used to work at Melbourne University uh, in the archives and special collections as their, you know, collections manager or cultural collections and archives, they called it. Um, and – yeah, I, th- I just use like an image that might s- speak to me and I use that as a rough guide. So I, I like to keep it pretty loose and not too specific. So obviously if it's, you know, maybe a more official sort of looking person like an apostle, I'd give it a robe or a garb and, you know, not have it naked. Yeah. Um, a king would have a crown. It's like pretty, pretty loose, things like that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And you obviously have this pretty like asymmetrical, like abstract style. Yeah, I, I try to make them a bit crude too and I give them very big features like big eyes, big nose, like big ears kind of thing because I think it makes them a bit more sentient when you're sharing the space with them. Because the thing with sculptures is, you know, people form attachments to them, I think, in a different way to paintings because you have to share the space with it. Like it occupies a physical space. It's not a flat 2D thing on a wall. Um, so I like to give them big features and people sort of, you know, imbued more kind of 
hum- humanness to them once they have those big eyes or you know big ears, big nose, big mouth kind of stuff. In terms of people that have bought these sculptures, do you know of like how people have like presented them in their homes and stuff like that? I, sometimes people send me pictures of where they exist in their homes and it's kind of it's kind of cool like I like to see where they end up but you know I don't really mind where people put them but yeah no it seems to be like living spaces more so yeah like your living rooms and stuff yeah has anybody done something pretty like oh wow that's a really cool way to show this piece of art oh I wish I could say that no I, I can't think of anything anyone's you know not yet not yet no because my mum's got this like Probably about that tall. No, probably that tall. Yeah. And which for people just listening, I'm showing about what, like a meter, 10 centimeters? Yeah. Meter and 20? A meter 10. So yeah, about that. And it's like this wooden block and then this uh, and a sculpture of Icarus and that has wings on the back, but they're all just sticks because they're burnt wings. Right. And it's wearing this like space but like motorcycle helmet and then like it's all white in terms of that and then it's got like a yellow kind of like tunic on right. and it, mum's put like this light that just shines up to it so then it's kind of like got a shadow That's cool. behind What's it. What's it made of? I don't know exactly. Right. I just click and it kind of, you can tap it. Tick, tick, tick. Um, Sounds I'm, hollow. I'm looking forward to getting into bronze casting. I'm going to do some bronze works at the end of the year. Because the thing with ceramics is people can't put them outside. I think they've, they've got to be in a living room Definitely. somewhere where it can't be knocked. Because, like, you know, you've paid $4,000 for this thing and you don't want the dog to knock the table and it to smash, you know? I, I broke one. You broke a ceramic? Yeah. What what did you do? It was a Lego man. I, uh, in, like, a very jovial way, I was like, you know, we were drinking in the living room. And um, I kind of, like, did that little, like, jovial, like, light to like oh, i'm gonna tap you on the leg right. with my leg you know my foot Got and it. then she grabbed my leg and pulled it up <laughs> and then i fell oh, backwards no. into it and just full like i didn't smash all the thing but like crack the head clean off oh, yeah God, and no. it's like these lego men that sit about like 80 centimeters 90 centimeters high right and we got three of them i've had a few um few collectors or clients sort of come to me and be like tom look I got. I need a replacement, whatever, like part to this. Or how do I fix this? You know, and they're always so apologetic. And I'm like, I feel like I should give some sort of like care manual to people. Like it is ceramic. It looks it looks strong, but it's not. You know, it will smash because it happens. It's happened three times now. Have you seen how the Japanese do that? Like the gold leaf, like stick things back together for all their yeah. I don't vases know how, and whatnot. Someone at the jam factory tried to teach me how to do that, and I was in a rush and had no time so i did something much lamer instead i um <laughs> i glued it back together and then got spack filler and just like spacked over the top of it like spack like you would use like sealy's like gap filler kind of thing oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i got like a trowel and went over the top of the trowel and then um got some like resin and filled in it like that which is you know a bit of a trade secret but you know, I didn't have time to do fire three more firings like with that gold stuff. Oh, is it pretty lo- lengthy process? We've well, got to fire it again. Like you've got to put it back in the kiln and fire it, which will take three days. About that's a long time. In terms of why you chose ceramics, why did you choose ceramics? <laughs> um, why did I choose ceramics? I had a friend who was a who is a ceramicist, quite famous ceramicist, and he was always trying to get me into it, almost as a way of like. Um, showing me how, you know, his thing and, like, his talent kind of thing. 
And I was, cause I was a painter and I was just like solely interested in painting. Whereas he was really blowing up and having a lot of success from ceramics. Um, so yeah, he just taught me sort of the basics of how to build a figure. And I kind of didn't really take, I, I took to it. Like I enjoyed it, but I never thought it would be part of my career. But then uh, after a while I realized, you know, there are so many painters, there are tens of thousands of painters in Australia. Like everyone's a painter. And, you know, painting's been around for a long time. There's a long history to it. So it's very hard to reinvent the wheel and do something new and identifiable. So I thought maybe I'll make my own subject matter. Like I'll physically make my own subject matter with clay, such as my own figures that I can paint. And then whatever I paint, no matter what style I paint in, it's going to be original because, you know, I made the subject by hand that doesn't exist anywhere else. So that's sort of, that was my motive. But now the ceramics are as popular as the painting. So I'm sort of doing both. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You get to live both. I mean, yeah, it's it's good because when you get sick of one, you go... I've got two studios at the moment, a, a painting studio in Highmarsh and a ceramic studio at the Jam Factory. So I get sick of one, I go to the other. So, How does that work? Why why two different spaces? Um, Just because you can? Well, because I can, but <laughs> also because I got invited to be the artist in residence for ceramics at the Jam Factory, but... Also, I couldn't afford a kiln at the time, so I was transporting the ceramics to a kiln down at Grange from my studio in Highmarsh. And when they're before they're fired, they're very brittle. Mm. So, so it was like, oh, this is freaking me out each time you well, go to transport it. Yeah, and there was a few cracks and breaks and a few, you know, yeah, a few okay. problems. But um, your kilns are super expensive. Like the one I'm looking at buying is like twelve thousand dollars. So mm. when my studio residency ends at Jam Factory, I'm gonna have to fork out twelve grand for a kiln somewhere. And they're hard to move around. So when you install it somewhere, you want to be there for at least long enough to make it worthwhile. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. That's pretty cool. And then in terms of like this new exhibit, when is it? What is it? Do you have like particular, like are you interested in like how to market things in a special way or like kind of create a bit more of a fun and story? Like how do you develop and kind of have people step into the world of your stories Currently, I mean, the good thing about having a good gallery is that, you know, they earn that 50% and they market it for you. So they get it in the right magazines and the right channels or whatnot. But, um, you know, I do some like time lapses and stuff around the studio and I record a bit of stuff for Instagram, but most of the stuff's outsourced. Like I'll have it professionally photographed, which, cause my gallery will pay half that cost. Yeah. And, um, then just social media, magazines, Instagram and whatever else. Yeah. yeah cool. I love that. All right, so something that we spoke about briefly previously, which was, and this is, you obviously know I'm about to go into, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> in terms of your like sexual preference being homosexual, you've said to me that um, that the industry has kind of like these certain expectations of what it means to be a homosexual artist and that you don't necessarily live up to those expectations. Well, I think what happens is it's it's more so the, the institutions and the funding bodies, like the state or federal funding bodies, you know, they like to tick a box for diversity and inclusion. So if you want the money, you really have to identify yourself as a minority of some sort. And why do you, like, what's going on there? What do you think about it? I mean, I wish it didn't have to be that way, but I think, there, you know, there's a camp that feels very strongly about that and they've got their reasons for that. You know, personally, I kind of feel like it's a bit tokenistic and I don't want to do that to myself. And I know a lot of people, you know, people of color or people of different sexual backgrounds, you know, feel the same way. Um, but it's kind of a bit of a, a 
cruel game because if you don't play along, you don't get the money. So, yeah. And are people pretty, like, strong in terms of who you've been dealing with that you have to, like, wear that kind of, like, that stamp really proudly? Um, or, like, I, outwardly? I don't know. I think I've made a career that I, where I'm happy where I don't have to really be that, you know, obtuse with it all. But, um, you know, certainly there are certain parts of the industry that, you know, I just won't exhibit in because, you know, they won't have me unless I do that. Okay. And what what do you reckon, like, what does that look like? What do you mean? Well, it's, it's probably more like museums, like government-funded museums would be where you'd find that, where they have a lot of curators. And it's the funniest thing about it is the curators are usually, you know, like straight white people who really wave the flag and want this. So it's fascinating. And I can't understand the rationale for that. Yeah. I don't know about it. What it, What is the rationale? The people that aren't living a certain way go, yes, we must tick these boxes. Like, do you think they have superiors that it's like we need that? Or are they like... Well, it looks like um, the art world has been audited by the government, to be honest. And we need um, to create spaces that we can, like, show our art to, like, um, a wide audience without having to ask permission or something like that. I think that's how it is. I think you're right that it is the gov- it's a lot of government involvement in the, f- in the sense that the institutions that want this kind of work or these kinds of artists rely on government funding. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so we need to create uh, more platforms that allow like more wider distribution of like could be just a display of art or just giving it value, the right value, yeah. the same way. Mm. Well, yeah, more independent sort of sources, I guess. Yeah, I decentralization. Mean, yeah, I mean it's happening everywhere. The institutions are all sort of struggling at the moment. Yeah, yeah. how did that? How has that affected the art world? Like. You, I mean, cryptocurrency is a clear like decentralization and uh, blockchain is decentralization platforms. But like, yeah, how do you think decentralization is affecting the art world? Um, it's interesting. Like, you know, a lot of artists sort of struggle. Like, should I go with a big gallery or like, an, and big galleries sort of are very aligned with institutions um, or should I, you know, sell my practice through social media or my own means kind of thing? And I think a big motivation for a lot of artists is validation. And unfortunately, you feel very validated when you're shown in a big gallery or institution. So whether that is the right financial decision or, you know, what are you in it for? Are you in it to be seen by the most amount of people or to make the most money or, you know, what are your motives kind of thing? What do you think the difference in terms of where your legacy will stand as an artist in the different routes? I just have no idea. Like, you know, never like thought of it. Can't predict the future. But um yeah, but in terms of like from what you've seen, like do you think that you <coughs> will have like people will have a longer lasting legacy if they go through the establishment route and be a part of that high end art because then they will continue to push it or Well, I think that's been the way for a long time. Like, you know, there's so many artists who you were probably you've never heard of because they weren't um sanctioned by the institutions. But um you know, like anything in history, like to the, the Victor Wright's history, right? So if you've got this, you know, for and against, it's whoever comes out on top will win. So if the institutions maintain their power and, you know, carry on and this decentralization doesn't work or doesn't happen or eventuate, then, yeah, then the artists that sided that side will have a legacy and the other ones won't. That's a very reasonable point of view. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, yeah. Logic yeah. checks out. 
I think um, my, I'd, so my master's was art history and uh, my professor was uh, Ian McLean and um, he taught me that, you know, the art world has a canon and it's sort of a way of thinking. And it's like, you know, how do you, you know, you either go with the canon or you go against it and break it and create a new canon and it's the same with all sort of, all sort of theories along. Yeah, Especially fair. with um, anything to do with arts, like that's just the way. Well, arts have always been very politicised, I think, because yeah. they're such a powerful communication tool. So correct, correct. Yeah, even in media, like they look towards that lens. Yeah, so, yeah. What do you mean? Like, um, how art? You said art. Um, sometimes like a canon, you either go with it or mm. um, you don't. It's like, yeah, I think that's how. Like, because art is a, is a very powerful communication tool, like you said. So it is politicized in that yeah. sense. So yeah. Well, it's often um co-opted by like interest groups and activists. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. As, as a means of communication. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it more complicated. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it can get, you know, you can get away from the art. Like, you know, art's meant to make change people's thoughts and feelings mm. and, mm. It, yeah, communicate various ideas. But there are some ideas that are sanctioned by institutions and other ideas that are not. And, you know, yeah. I don't get to pick those and I'm nowhere near, you know, ha- accessing the kind of people that pick those. So, yeah. I just make paintings and figures. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. What do you think? In terms of like, do you look at kind of like macro politics and stuff like that, and like how we're kind of moving towards as a society? Oh God! During twenty twenty, when I was locked in my apartment for you know one hundred and sixty days, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about those things and reading about those things. But thank God, the last year or so, I've been in Adelaide with no lockdowns, and it's been wonderful. I haven't had to think like that, so you know, I've just been relaxing a bit. Well, that's good to hear. But let's digress back to that. <laughs> Where do you think in terms of like, do you think when we're speaking about governments having an influence on the art world, do you think that that is a growing thing? And where where do you see that really like happening? Because obviously there's the identity side of politi- identity politics, but what other political things are you seeing? Like with the rise of like China and more communist Leninist uh, ideas, are you seeing that art with those ideas is being more favoured and like things that are more democracy and freedom-based ideas are being like, nah, like what other kind of themes are you seeing? Um, I'd never thought of it in that. I'd never thought of it in that scope before, but, um, and so I don't have a very good answer. Um, well, it doesn't have to be just that. Scope, <coughs> so what's the question? Then? <laughs> okay. The, uh, the question is what themes are you seeing that the establishments are preferring at the moment? Yeah. So at the moment, it's all about diversity and inclusion. So it's all about, um, especially with Indigenous people and giving them their right, rights back and their access to, the, you know, their their visibility, increasing their visibility and tr- as a means of, I guess, unofficial means of reparations. Um, so that's a big thing in the art world right now. But yeah, it's mostly about giving voices to minorities. And it's funny enough that all the artists are minorities, but the curators curating the artists are all white middle class people. Um so that, that's the biggest movement I see right now. Yeah, yeah okay. I can really val- validate that, you know, being an artist of colour, but then only also in nearly every field of art, it's got a theme of diversity and c- inclusion. You know, like um, there's one in here in Port Adelaide where there's a, um, there's a film uh, festival competition for diversity and inclusion as well, you know. Because mm. I've just done a short, <coughs> uh, short film. And I was just looking at um, some awards that could be, I could enter. Yeah. And a lot of them I got to do with inclusion, um, like the criterias and diversity. 
Yeah, and it used to be an unspoken thing, but now if you go to um, guidelines on like you know government sort of websites for funding, it's actually in the assessment criteria. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. That's a big change. Yeah, so it's become more official. Yeah, okay. There you go. And working with bronze, outdoor things. Yeah. Tell me about that journey. Oh, there's, the foundry I'm looking at is in Melbourne. Unfortunately, there's no foundry in Adelaide that does um, the kind of casting I want to do, which is lost wax and have like colourful patinas and stuff. So patinas are like the chemicals you apply to the bronze to make it a certain colour. Um, so I want my work's quite vibrant and bold and sort of out there. And, you know, brown and green doesn't really work with that. So I've got to go to Melbourne for it. It's called Malwood Foundry. How long does it take to apply those colours to bronze? I think... The patina, I've never done it. I'm about to do it in September for the first time. But the patina stage, as in the colouring stage, I think takes three weeks. Wow. Yeah, of hand application. So it's very expensive to do. Yeah. And are you going to be personally learning that skill to then do I'm, it? I'll do it with someone who knows what they're doing. But yeah, I'll, I'm flying over there for five days and I think they'll they'll be finishing. I'll sort of like instruct them how I want it. After, you know. So what kind of pre-planning? Oh, I'm doing it. It's funny we're talking about grants and whatnot. I've had I've written a grant for it for Art South Australia, who've been good to me recently. They helped me out with my residency in um, the Jam Factory. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. I think I write like a budget and a timeline and a project rationale and description and make sure all the you know interested parties are you know on board, like the foundry and my gallery and anyone else. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then in terms of like the process of your paintings. What, what's your process of making a painting? Like, do you put base layers and stuff like that? Yeah. So, like I said, once the the figures are in my studio and I'm sort of imagining them interacting, um, I'll take pictures of my iPhone and just sort of think a bit farther from that. And then I might be sitting in bed late at night, just sort of like looking at the pictures and sort of imagining. And from then, I'll draw just on the canvas, you know, their figures. And then you start with an acrylic background and you work the oils up to the to make it more real and give it a bit more tonal depth. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So, like, there's a, a thing called glazing, which is basically adding, like, a, a medium, like a gel to oils, which makes them translucent and thin. And you can do shadows and depth with that. So, yeah, yeah, beauty. Yeah. And what technical. kind of things are you are you known for in your technical side of things? Um, I guess I do oil painting, which is more tonal and 3D, but I do have big flat areas. Like, I like the background a bit flat and sort of, like, the ele- elements – of the painting a bit flat, which is just using acrylic. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So we got Owen back in the building. Owen is our videographer. Shout outs to Owen. He went and got some keys because oh. we forgot the keys to be able to lock this place up. Oh, there you go. And now we've got them. And this is your how many time you done how many times have you done this recording video thing? I think we've got on about 10, yeah. 10, 10, 11 guests now here. Nice. Yep, that yeah. sounds about right, yeah. A lot lots to come as well. Dude, you've yeah. got to you've got to get a heater. <laughs> yeah dude i was noticing because we haven't done winter episodes here right like we've only done like you know it's only kind of just hit winter and uh yeah it's definitely cooler in here i had a studio a bit like this in melbourne and i ended up getting bunnings outdoor heaters for like you know 100 bucks like big heat lamps and just putting them around my studio so that's a that's I a good hi- idea highly recommend yeah. yeah and what kind of studio are you looking at setting yourself up like what what do you want to see in that new studio to make it your home uh, honestly like you want it pretty like durable because like ceramics and paintings pretty messy stuff but i also want some sort of nice area i can bring clients to and display a bit of work and you know probably not too far from the cbd because collectors are a bit lazy and you know you've got to make it easy for them if they're gonna 
drop by and maybe buy something. So fair enough. Yeah. And in terms of the like the I guess the business side of with collectors and stuff, do you find like it is just getting them into your studio or like some people you've had to like go out to lunches with and like what has it been like developing relationships in the art world? I mean, I've never taken a collector out to lunch, but they've often taken me out to lunch or dinner after they've bought something, which is kind of cool. But, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. But I think often if they are serious collectors and they get into your work and they want to buy more than one, then they kind of want to know you. Like, so that's why they want to take you out for a drink or a coffee or a bite to eat kind of thing. Yeah, cool. Yeah. What kind of weird questions have you been asked by collectors? Um, I had, I mean, I don't want to, name names or anything but i had a collector recently and we we're at a restaurant at also yeah um good restaurant. yeah it was lovely and they, the collector was down i shouldn't say where they're from it's going to get too obvious but they'd flown down to adelaide for the for two nights and he came back from the bathroom with a roll of toilet paper in his hand and i was <laughs> like right like i was like oh what are you doing with that and he's like look at this and he's like, you know how when you go to uh, hotels there in Boss, the toilet paper, like it's got that stamp and you have to pull the first fold up and it's like attached to the rest of it, yeah. kind of like by heat or something. And he'd done that to it. And I was like, he's like, how do you reckon I did this? And I was like, no idea. Just absolutely no idea. And he told me this story about his cleaning lady has been doing this to him recently. He's only re- for like six months or so, he got a new cleaning lady and he'd only recently figured out what she was doing. She was running the tap hot for a while and then pressing the roll of toilet paper up to the tap, like then turning it off and pressing it up to the tap. And that makes the embossment like that's apparently what they do at hotels and stuff. What? He, he came out and also with the toilet roll to the table and this was like telling me about this. And I was like, wow, that's so random. But that's kind of cool. But yeah, I'm not gonna lie. that's kind of cool. Like what a random thing that it happens in the room. Yeah. Like totally. Well, now I go to people's houses and I do it myself as well. So <laughs> with I haven't, I've done it once. <laughs> She little Stella, oh, he's yeah. been here again. This is my party trick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a party trick nobody knows unless you do it like 10 times. They're like, why is this kid happening? <laughs> it gets kind of obvious when once you realize like you look at the tap, like every tap's obviously different and you see the, the pattern of the seal and you're mm. like, oh yeah, that looks like a tap. So what is it? Actually like the, the, the nozzle. the water comes out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you learn something. Eh? Yeah. From me and to you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And how have you gone about like learning these different like, how did you learn how to sculpt things? Like, I feel like that's a, not an easy task to intentionally make things in exactly the shapes you want. It, it sounds pretty pretty crazy. Like, I didn't even go to art school. So, like, I lit, I'm self-taught painter and sculptor. But um, I had a, a friend who was a quite famous sculptor, and he taught me just the basics. We would have spent, like, three sessions at his parents' house sort of just playing with clay and doing it. And I think with a lot of art, you teach yourself. If you want to be original and stand out, just teach yourself. Fair enough. What kind of things have you taught yourself? To paint and sculpt. (laughs) But like in terms of like there's been a particular like tool you've used, like do you have any um, ways of doing things? It's like, oh, that was a really cool thing to figure out. All all my sculptures by hand. So like I just pretty much use a knife in my hands. So I cut very simple shapes and I cut slabs. I cut slabs out of a big piece of clay, like a big 20 kilogram piece of clay. And then I sort of flatten it. And I guess the thing I learned that's you want it as flat as possible because you don't, you want it even, um, you know, uneven clay will you, cause you need the, the sculpture to balance. So you don't want the, to, you know, top topple over. So yeah, I guess to make it as flat as possible. And but yeah, I don't know. You've just got to find your own way with it. Like find your own aesthetic, find your own medium. Yeah. I don't know how 
I, I didn't go. Cool. I didn't go to art school, so I can't really pass on any pills that anyone ever taught me. But mm. I watch YouTube videos if I can't figure something out. Yeah, like who's some good YouTube video people? I'll, uh, no one. Like I'll just type like you know how do I get a warm shadow darker with this type of paint, and there'll be a video on that. No kidding, I do that for videos. Is that how you learned how to record and everything podcast? Yeah, just YouTube. Cool. Yeah, you can teach yourself anything. I I taught myself my undergraduate by googling things like you know. Yeah, I had a friend, and every time he had an exam, instead of looking at all the lectures and whatnot, he would just look at what everything's on and watch full YouTube yeah. videos about all of it. I mean, I wish I'd got onto it sooner. Like, you know, my master's might have been easier. Yeah, you learn a lot of good skills. Although my master's was art history, so there probably isn't a lot of YouTube art history kind of content out there. Oh, no, there is. Really? Oh, yeah. I've watched some really good ones. Uh, there was this one in particular actually that I watched two or three times. It was the Russian art history, right? And it was just phenomenal. And like how, like even at like, it was so interesting how at each war period there was this huge collection of people that all got together and were like, "We're having a war. We need to grab all the phenomenal art and just vault it. Oh, amazing. So then it doesn't yeah. get destroyed, and then the uh, you know our history can actually be passed on." down generations it, it's weird that the humans have this innate sort of desire to like document themselves in art and you know just this is what you know how else, like, would we document ourselves i guess like video now and you know writing but that's still art pretty has new a, yeah but art still has a special place in, in society's sort of mind and it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to see like you said before with um what will make it and what won't a lot of the contemporary art we see in all these museums and galleries at the moment you know 99.9 percent of it will end up in the trash as in like the actual dump kind yeah. of thing there isn't enough room for all this contemporary art and well, to store it's expensive as well art's the only industry that's had uninterrupted growth since the 50s there's been no year where the art market decreased or had a drop even in all the gfcs and whatnot and there's just more and more of it being made so that's why it's harder and harder to break through mm, that's pretty cool and do you think being able to have relationships with these big galleries is probably the the most surefire way for people to break through. It's it certainly feels a lot safer having a big gallery backing you because. How like, did you meet a big gallery? Like, what was your story of actually? That the guy, de- the guy that uh, was liking my pictures. I think I, I was driving. Is back. that it? He just found you. Well, because um, that art incubator, that uh, collector Teresa that gave me the grant money, she had um announced that I was the recipient of the grant through her like media platforms, and he oh, was following man. her. Yeah, just social media. Yeah, there you go. And so I she- think. He had seen my work. He went to the exhibition because I said, I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, whilst I'm in town, you know, my my exhibition's on here. I can show you around if you want. And he wasn't in town. He said, oh, I'll see it at some point. And I thought, oh, he's not going to go see it. But he did. That's so organic. Yeah, it was pretty good. I love that. It's not some wild goose chase story where you're like, Uh, like J. Cole in New York and goes outside, you know, can't, uh, Jay-Z's Rockefeller and was like, have my record and like met him, but he Is didn't that do what anything. He did? Yeah. Oh. oh, he was full groveling for it. Well, there's plenty of people that submit their work to a gallery. I think, I don't know how much of that even gets looked at, like, or maybe gets glanced at, but it's a very relational um, industry. So even that was, didn't really seal the deal with him seeing my work. Next time I was in Sydney, he said, come in and have a chat with me kind of thing. And we talked for like an hour and then he realized that, yeah, he wanted to sign me, like represent me kind of thing. And um, 
but he, he must have known he had a fairly good inkling because he had like a contract ready downstairs and came up with it and was like, so your solo will be this date. Da, da, da. So he'd already kind of like in his mind thought if the meeting went well, what would happen from it? So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. He was just checking you out. Vibe just checking. Me. Yeah. Vibe checking. It's actually not weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not too weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want a little bit of weird, like to be different, but. To be an artist. It's kind yeah. of expected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any kind of weird things about your life like are you I go seem to pretty level-headed uh, i go to people's houses and i fuck with their toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i was watching i've watched some really good art movies actually i always forget names i'm sorry i should know all the names of all the movies oh, i watch because right. i watch whole movies about them but there was this one guy who like left his family and went to this like tropical island and then made art and then ended up becoming this really really famous artist and, like, just lived this whole renegade life. And then there was another one that, like, oh, he would just have all these people in the studio, but his studio was just, like, so dilapidated. Um, I think there's a lot of um, romantic notions about the life of an artist and the studio of an artist. And uh, the, the biggest, you know, the most the biggest common denominator I find with artists is the ones that make the make any success of themselves are just incredibly hardworking. Like, it's just so much more work than you ever think it's going to be. Like, if I'd known how difficult it was, I might have done something else. Yeah, what's your, what's your schedule like? Oh, uh, like, at the moment, I probably go to the studio seven days a week, and some days are six hours, some days are five hours, some days are eight hours. But um, beyond that, you wake up and you're answering emails and you're running a small business as well. So you're, like, a small business owner that has to hand-make the product every day. So it's like, you, and you're the marketing and you're the PR, and even with galleries and these other people as well, you've sort of, like, got to keep on top of everything. And you're writing grants and you're, you know, traveling for exhibitions. So it's, yeah. it's Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. But the, the dream is, though, that, you know, once you get to a certain level, you're selling your work for, you know, so much money that you can take more time off. But Yeah, the dream isn't free. You've got to sacrifice first. Yeah. And then, yeah. If somebody does want to buy a piece of your work, how much, what's your range? Um, so the sculptures, st- the 30 centimeters start at 3,000 and they go to about, like the 70 centimeter I said before, we haven't priced that one yet, but it's probably going to be like 6,000. Um, paintings start at about like really small things, about 3,000. But um, in this exhibition, they range between 4.8 and I think 11 and a half. So yeah. Cool. And then every exhibition, you obviously increase it because you want people to have that sense of urgency because it is going up. How do you choose how many pieces to have in an exhibit? Oh, kind of ba- like you, you base it on the space you're filling in some senses, but also it's a conversation with the gallery, like, and, you know, commercial gallery or curator, whoever you're talking to, you know, they'll, they'll have an idea in mind and it's a negotiation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cool. And do you make like a lot of things that don't ever see the light of day? Yeah. Thank God. When I was younger, I used to just like Instagram or show everything I made and that's just a bad idea. Because you only want people to conceive you as, as in your best possible light. So I, I have to do a lot of editing. Like some things I make and I think, oh, that shouldn't leave the studio. And sometimes I make it and I like it, but I think it's probably not good enough for the website, you know. And what will, det- what will like determine it not good enough? Oh, maybe I've already done a few of that before and you don't want to have like heaps of repetition like you or you want to have a little bit of repetition and a bit of brand identity but you don't want to just be like regurgitating an idea or maybe one you know maybe it just looks too similar to something else on there yeah, yeah cool and who are your favorite artists of all time uh i always love goya um his work's amazing it's very dark and twisted but he was a beautiful painter and you know it's got a lot of depth and meaning to it 
Um, he was a masterful, you know, comp, you know, composer of paintings, like as well as just the, the technical application is brilliant. Um, and alive, like there's a, a girl called Katja Sieb who's based, she's from Germany and she's based in LA right now. And I love her paintings. They're just pretty weird. I'll text you her name. Yeah, what's her style? Let's look it up. We can show people things. I just you've got you've got that tech. No, I'll just put it on after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, that's um, all right. What's her Instagram? Uh, Katja Sieb. So K A Y K A Y K A Y A S E I B. I'm pretty sure S E I B. Let's find it. I don't see anything. Hold up. I love art. I think it's so important, and especially when I've gone on my travels to just see, like. Oh, the okay. art from like yeah. a thousand years ago. It's hectic. Um, yeah, I'll just look on your phone. I'm going to um, Europe for the first time in a long time this July and August, and I can't wait. I just need to get into some museums and some cool galleries and, you know, get some inspiration. Fair. And get some sun. Yes. These are kind of cool. What do you love about it? Um, what are you looking at? Well, in general, I just like the application of paint and just, just the... Attic, for example. Just the fucking weirdness of it but it's like it's it just feels unique it feels like i haven't seen it before which you know i've worked in art for a while now because like i said i worked in a gallery in london and i was an artist assistant before i was an artist you know i feel like i've seen everything sometimes yeah so when i see something unique or original i'm like cool like it catches my eye so you see a lot of the same stuff again and again how did you find her she's not that huge by the looks of it it's weird that she's only she must have accepted my follow but she doesn't accept many because her work sells for about twenty five thousand pounds of painting. So, That's a lot. So she's making good money. Yeah. yeah. And she's our age. She's all my age. She's thirty two. Yeah. So yeah. Well, there you go. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I wish I was selling mine for twenty five thousand pounds a pop, but it's a journey though. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, in Australia, there's no one really doing that at thirty. So you know, there's a couple painters selling their stuff for fifty k, maybe hundred k that are living, but yeah, not many. I mean, being a living artist, like, what is that like for you? Like, do you think now is a lot easier to be, like, a successful living artist than... I think there's more competition than ever, but there's also more opportunities than ever. Like I said, the market's grown and grown uninterrupted since the 50s, so there's more money out there. But it's the kind of industry where the top 1% earn 99% of the money, just like the real world. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's... But maybe even more skewed. It might even be, like, the top 0.25% earn you know, 99.5% of the money. I think Australia Council, which is the federal funding body, the federal arts body, did a, um, a survey in 2017 of all kinds of artists. So that was musical artists, um, theatre artists, you know, performing artists, visual artists. And then visual artists, um, the average income in Australia was $44,000. Um, but that was over two jobs. So not just like a, a secondary job, not just their art job, but the... So that's the the mean and the median money was something like $5,000. So like if you look at a distribute distribute uh distribution yeah, um like a graph the, the yeah the median being the middle like the average was you know $5,000 the average person but the real average was of the total amount was what $44,000 because look I'm not good at math but it's just skewed yeah. Yeah, it just shows you the skew is like insanely steep. And do you want to, like, travel with your art? Like, I mean, like, what's what's the game plan? Like, what kind of things you want to create? Where do you want to go? Like, yeah, I think, what are, what are um, goals? Yeah, I mean, I would love to exhibit overseas. I think almost every 
artist that's working full-time wants to exhibit overseas you know we're very isolated in australia but and it's great to exhibit here but you know you feel like you made it if you make it overseas which is there particular galleries overseas that you're like they're the ones that i would love to show in like are you kind of geek out and there are like there are the mega galleries that are ones that like can just make your life like make you a billionaire make you a millionaire but and so obviously i'd love that uh gagosian is one Okay. I think one of the best galleries in the world is based in London. It's called Sadie Coles HQ. Um, but yeah, Gagosian's the biggest in the world. Um, but yeah, you know, it just wouldn't happen. I think there's one Australian artist in the last, you know, 20, 30 years has had a show with Gagosian, and it was an indige- indigenous artist from the APY lands. So, Cool. Do you know who it was? I don't. It's a her, and um, I can't. Don't have a name off the top of my head. Oh, good. I only found that out a couple of days ago, to be honest. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, people should look that up. I'm gonna look that up. I'll look it up for you. Or yeah. Yeah. Easy done. That's pretty cool. And then in terms of like the size, are you planning on like, like, do you have a goal of like making something like huge? Yeah. I mean, I've, there's some big paintings in this upcoming show. Like one's like 1.5 meters wide, which for me is big. But um, yeah, maybe I'll get bigger. I want to make some really big sculptures. Like I think that'd be cool to make like a life-size sculpture, like six foot tall. Yeah, I mean, making it out of ceramic, you reckon? Yeah, I reckon you can do it. Or do it in bronze. It would be easier in bronze because in bronze, right, you don't you hold. Have, yeah, and you, you don't have to fire the clay. You can just make a cast of it. So the clay, you just can slop it together. It doesn't have to last. It doesn't have to be hollow. It doesn't have to last very long. It just has to last long enough to make a silicone mold of it and then you fill it with wax and cast it kind of thing. Whereas with ceramics, they've got to be you know, hollow so they don't explode in the kiln and they've got to dry slowly so there's no cracks. And yeah, they've got to be structurally sound and it's clay, which is hard to get structurally sound that big. Yeah, I feel like that'd be a, that'd be a mega undertaking. Like imagine trying to make something like 20 foot. Well, like think of the terracotta warriors or the terracotta horses the Chinese used to How do. How big were they? I think they were like five feet tall. They're pretty big. That is pretty big. Yeah. There was heaps of them. Thousands, yeah. Yeah. But I guess there's like thousands of people are making them. Like if I had people helping me, it would be easier. Hey, you will. Yeah. Got to get an assistant soon. <laughs> yeah. Get a whole get a whole army. Oh, God. I mean, isn't that what Bromley did? He started like having like full like... Yeah. Like, like not he, sweatshops, but like... I mean, was he, it sweatshops? I think he designs them and he's like, you know, you put that paint there kind of thing. Okay. I think a lot of artists do that towards the end of their career to sell out. Yeah. That's definitely what I've been told that that's like... <laughs> What he is now. Um, some people love him and still love his style, but then a lot of people are like, he's really depreciated because he's put so much work out now. Yeah, I think he's saturated the market. Yeah, yeah fair. But he's probably loving it though. Yeah, I mean, he's happy. Like. I saw his uh, his uh, gallery. In, in Melbourne? It was in, yeah, I think it was in Melbourne. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I've not been. But, it's, um, it's nice. Check it out. It's a beautiful building and there's a lot of art in there. And we've got one and it's like, you, it's, you know, like a staircase that goes like up that way and then up that way. And then on the up that way, you walk through the, uh, you walk through the door and it's like actually these legs and you're walking through the middle of the legs. Oh, right. Yeah, it's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there are a few crazy artists out there that must have the most insane life. Have you heard of um, uh, Damien Hurst? Yes. Yeah. He's the first self-made billionaire artist. How do you even? What? But how he, has he done he, it? He'd be like Bromley as well. Like he'd have a production line of people helping him. Yeah. You know? What do you think that is like the defining factors of what you learned from people like that? I mean, 
it's it's like what I said. Like, what do you what are you in it for? Are you in it for money, for validation, for like notoriety? Like, you know, you've got to choose your journey, choose your road, kind of thing. What's and your journey? Well, I don't know. I'm pretty new to it, but I I do need an assistant at some point. I've got to. I can't meet demand, and I need to up my production. So I'm gonna have to get an assistant at some point. Do you know what's crazy? I recently just um had have an assistant now. Oh yeah, yeah. Because um she she's very connected like she's good with networking organization all that and she has a common interest in helping like with the artistic venture that i've been doing so we've been in touch for like a year now and yeah so now we just said all right look it's getting hectic dude you made it bro you've got an assistant i'm I'm jealous of you it's not like um it's like a personal assistant i wouldn't say like um she's going to be taking charge of this or that but this organizing side yeah definitely yeah yeah. every decisions any help you can get like yeah. my, my biggest problem is I'd be too much of a perfectionist like because I need help with like physically making things like and I, I feel like with painting I would be able to delegate a little bit more but with sculpture I f- like it's just so hands-on and handmade I don't know how I would get someone to I don't know what they do for me like cut the slabs before I you know I roll it all up and stuff yeah, like I that don't prepare know. it yeah prepare it but I feel like that's such like menial work I wouldn't want to even hire someone to do that like Maybe, I don't know if you'd pay them good money, maybe. I was an artist assistant for 30 bucks an hour doing stuff like that at one point. And, yeah. What was that like for you? I felt like it was pretty boring. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. It's like, I think I couldn't be a gardener. You couldn't be a gardener? No, I'd get too bored. I'd, I could be a gardener. I mean, it depends on the gardens. I, I think know. if you're doing luxury gardens, you could probably, like, love it. I but think if you're just doing regular gardens all the time. But do you like plants? I like the look of them. <laughs> I don't really like growing them. Uh, it, it's some people's passion. If it's your passion, it's your passion. I think I could be a gardener. If I wasn't an artist, I'd like some sort of hands-on kind of more simple job like that. Yeah. Mm. No, Granny loves gardening. Yeah, I was gonna say in my case, the hard part is scheduling, like or like the shows. Because mine is like performance base. Yeah. Like speaking base. So like lots of inquiries would just be coming in. And it's like, and then you've got your own life. You're trying to build your personal brand and totally was, things like that. I think I'd have a similar scheduling problem, but mine would be me being where I need to be, where I say when I say I'm going to be it. Because like the the day for me is so, I don't know. So many things just pop up, and if I, someone's relying on me and relying on me to be somewhere, like uh, directing them or managing them, like I often just have to drop things and you know go do it. Or like today, for instance, I went to the jam factory to do a sculpture. I allocated two hours to it. I was there for like five and a half hours. I was like, what the fuck? Because it just, it wasn't working out. And with clay, it's not very forgiving. Like, I can't just abandon it. I could like cling wrap it and put plastic on it and stop it's drying. But it means I've got to go back in tomorrow and that slows it. But you want everything to dry at a consistent speed so it doesn't crack. Because if one, like an arm is drying quicker than a body, it'll crack and fall off kind of thing. Mm. So I'm sort of like dependent on the clay. In a wrong it's like ways. a bit of a freestyle. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's cool. And I get my little spray bottle of water to like try to slow it as well. But like, you know, it's winter. They've got the heater on in there. So it's just drying so quickly on me. True. That's fair. Similar to like gardening. Got to look after you like a baby. You do. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like the the, the sculptures are like my babies. And so like, and I feel very connected to them. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I think. That's cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. Is there anything you'd like to say? No, we covered a lot of ground, and I'm getting freezing. <laughs> uh, you that cold? Yeah, I've been. Yeah, the studio was pretty cold by the end. I turned the heater off, and then I guess I was. 
been here a couple hours. But All yeah. right, fair enough. We'll get you into some warmth. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you sharing, you know, what your journeys look like, you know, what kind of things you've been working with, the ideas you've been playing with. Appreciate it. Yeah, cheers, man. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Cool.